Look with me in Judges chapter 16. I'm going to begin in verse 21 and read down through the end of the chapter. The Bible says, as it speaks of Samson, it says, The Philistines seized him, and they gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. And here's grace in verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice, and they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when their people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, and that's just a polite way of saying when they got drunk, their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who, led, who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. So a recurring statement that I've made almost in every message in this series is, how in the world did a man like Samson get his name recorded, inscripturated in Hebrews chapter 11 with all of these other mighty men and women of the faith from the Old Testament? Samson, to the human eye, seems like a misfit because most of his life was characterized by following his flesh. He, he really just didn't seem to follow God. And so the more we walked through his life together, the more I started getting my focus off of Samson's failures, and instead I started just seeing the magnitude of the grace of God. I started becoming reacquainted with how immeasurable the grace of God Almighty is. For it's one thing to let a guy like Samson into heaven, but it's an entirely different thing to not only let him into heaven, but to memorialize him as a man who did great feats of faith. Now, why do I even bring this up? Because somewhere during the series, I hope that there was enough humility in each of us to where we could say, yes, sometimes I've blown it like Samson. Maybe not to the degree that he did, maybe not even in the arena that he continually struggled in, but if all of us will just get still and, and calm in the presence of the majestic Son of God and recognize his holiness, we will inevitably have to come to terms with our unholiness. 
And so whereas we see the grace of God on Samson's life, and it's very obvious, what I hope is that we're all growing in our faith to see the grace of God on our lives. And that we're no longer prone to say, yeah, I'm not like Samson. I'm not like Delilah. I'm not like the other rascals that are in this passage of Scripture or in these chapters in the book of Judges. I'm not like them. My friends, I think we need to remember a statement from our New Testament. Do you remember what the Word of God says? The Word of God tells us, he that offends in the law in one point is guilty of it all. We are pickers and choosers. We are railers against sins that we would never struggle with. But we have this little insidious tendency to give ourselves free passes on the sins. Of course, they're always little sins when it's us, the little sins that we might struggle with. But the word of God, James told us that if you offend in one point of the law, you are guilty of it all. That is not encouraging news, but it becomes encouraging when we recognize, but our violations cannot exceed the grace of God when our confidence and our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? You may not like the way that sounds, but I'm going to tell you, where sin abounds, grace there, how much? Much more abounds. That is the story of Samson. So when we left him last time, he had been taken captive by the Philistines. He had told the secret of his strength to the woman that he loved, and that woman had no love for him. She betrayed him, sold him out for 5,500 pieces of silver to the lords of the Philistines. She was done with Samson. Samson is now taken away captive, his head having been shaved, his supernatural strength having left him, and this is where we pick up tonight. So again, a little refresher from last week, but let's look at the harsh reality that found Samson. This is the full reaping of what Samson had sown. First of all, he had lost his power. It's very clear in verse number 21 at the beginning of it, the Bible says something it had never said about Samson before, the Philistines seized him. That means when he had his head shaven, he became like any other man. That was the testimony from earlier in the chapter. He became uh, weak. He became no threat to them. He was able to be easily overcome. And the Philistines, the enemies of God, the pagans, the one that mocked and defied Yahweh, the people that oppressed the people of God, the seed of Abraham. Now, the, the champion of Israel, Samson, was now their most famous prisoner. He was a trophy as they led him back down to their home city. So he, he had no power. The days of his striking down a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, those days were over. The days of him taking 30 men and killing them and taking their garments and flinging them at the feet of their, their fellow Philistines when he had lost the riddle, those days are over. Samson, who had struck fear in the heart of the Philistines for so long, was now just an average guy. He lost his power, he forfeited his anointing, and he did it because he could not overcome the lust of his eyes for women. He kept going further and further down until finally the Lord let him reap what he had sowed. In the process, he lost something else. He lost his vision. The end of verse number 21, it's, it's graphic, but the Bible says that the Philistines gouged out his eyes. Now, we can read that, and I don't, I don't want to unnecessarily get graphic with this thing, but you've got to remember with me that Samson, his favorite thing to do was to look at things. He was a man that was driven by what he saw. 
And yet when he fell into the hands of the enemy, the enemy took the very thing that said, had guided Samson's life and, and his eyes were literally spooned out of his head. Typically they would do that with a heated up piece of metal and he was blinded. He had no eyeballs in his eye sockets and he was absolutely blinded. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of what sin does to us in the spiritual Spend, we may have our physical eyeballs, but when we persist in a sinful way that leads us farther and farther away from the Lord, we too lose our vision. We don't see the kingdom like it is. We don't sense or discern the movement of God. We can't see the attacks of the enemy. We don't perceive things in the realm of the kingdom. We start seeing things with the vision of natural eyes, and everything becomes logic, reason, impulse, and flesh. But when you see with spiritual eyes, you see things as the Lord does. When you walk in the Spirit, the Spirit imparts to you wisdom and vision and understanding. You can actually see trouble before it ever reaches your doorstep when you have the vision that God imparts to people. But what is true for us in the Spirit was also true for Samson in that when we persist in rebellion against God, one of the first things that we lose is our vision. So he had done that. Ultimately, we see very clearly in verse 21, he, he lost his freedom. The Bible says that the Philistines brought Samson back down to Gaza and they bound him with bronze shackles. Quite frankly, I don't even know that they needed the shackles made of bronze because Samson no longer had his strength. He no longer had his anointing. But the Philistines had heard enough and seen enough of Samson over the 20-year time period that he had been a thorn in their side. They, they, they did not want to take any chances. And so picture this. Picture the God-called appointed judge of Israel named Samson the one who was consecrated before he was born. His, his very conception and birth were prophesied by the Lord. His calling was put over his life before Samson ever drew his first breath in the atmosphere of planet Earth. And this man that had been promised so much and so much had been um, uh, attributed to his life, now here he is and he's being paraded down through the territory of the enemies of God as a trophy of their conquering strength. Don't miss this also. Samson represented the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to all of the population. He was the leader of the Hebrews. They were the only monotheistic people. All the other nations, all the other people groups, they worshiped multiple gods. They were what we call polytheistic. But Israel was monotheistic. There was only one God of Israel. And because Samson was the representative, the Philistines were basically in this mode. Hey, our daddy can beat up your daddy. Our God can trump your God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Jews, what do you call him? Yahweh? Well, so much for Yahweh. Dagon has given us the victory. You know, we don't think about that a lot, but the church really needs to wake up as, as the fires of uh, division hit the American church, where our culture is going to increasingly become hostile to biblical Christianity and biblical Christians, where they will tolerate us if we will compromise our messaging enough to make them feel comfortable about how they live. But biblical Christians who stand for righteousness, who advance the gospel, who aren't afraid to speak as according to the word of the Lord, there's going to be hostility coming on against us. And if we do not make up our minds to stay consecrated, to live sanctified and holy lives that have that vision of God, that have that anointing of God, that have that power from God, if we don't operate like that, eventually we will be led as a prisoner of the culture instead of being a servant of the Lord. Samson had fallen to that place. He was paraded all around the land. He also lost his purpose in verse 21. 
The Bible just says he ground at the mill in the prison. That doesn't mean much to you or to me, but Samson's sitting there in the prison courtyard. We don't know how long, by the way. Um, His eyes are gouged out. He would have been a hideous mess to look at. Utterly isolated, completely humiliated, and he's at a millstone and he's grinding the grain, which was the assignment of the lowest slave in Philistine culture. So Samson went from being the apple of God's eye for Israel to having the purpose of the most common servant in the land of the Philistines. And that's what he was doing. Um, Just a moment of consideration. I know what it's like to live on the backside of immense failure. Most of you know I wasn't saved till I was 24, and I can remember prolonged seasons, knowing, that, knowing intellectually that God was great, remembering all the stuff I heard about Jesus from my childhood, remembering uh, at age 12 or 13, I think I was 13, uh, a prophet spoke over my life, and he said, God's got great plans for you if you will ever get serious about him. And I blew that off as a 13-year-old, but that thing stuck with me. And then as a 20, probably 22, 23-year-old, unredeemed, miserable, suicidal, addicted man, I remember this kind of scene being played out on my life where I was just absolutely alone. I was living in darkness. I was miserable. I had no purpose, and I felt powerless to do anything about it. Friends, I know what it's like to feel the weight of shame over your own failures and over your own decisions, and that's where Samson was. That's all he had. He couldn't look at anything more. All he is is living in darkness with his own regrets, grinding gray in a a grain in a Philistine jail with no purpose whatsoever. Just a, a, a gentle warning to all of us here. Don't take the gifts that God has given you for granted. Don't take the ministry that he's given you for granted. You say, Jeff, I I don't really know if what I'm doing is a ministry. Let me tell you something. Anything you do on purpose for Jesus is a ministry. Anything. And it doesn't have to have a platform, a spotlight, a microphone, a stage. It doesn't have to be done on this property. As a matter of fact, most, most ministry ought to be being done by us off of this property where it's most desperately needed. But don't take your gifting or your calling or your current assignment for granted because there could possibly come a time where if you take it for granted, God doesn't want to entrust it to you anymore and you will lose even that which you have. And that is what has happened to Samson here. But hallelujah, verse number 22. He lost his power, his vision, his freedom, and his purpose, but he retained the most important thing. He retained his sonship. You see, God took all of the externals away from Samson. He did. He allowed him to be plundered. But he never removed the one thing that God himself refused to remove from Samson, and that it was, was his standing with God. Verse 22 signifies that. How do we know that? Because the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. The Bible says that while he was in his misery, while he was in the backwash of his failures, while he was fully recognizing every day the regrets that now would characterize his life, invisibly, indiscernibly, imperceptibly, coming up through the natural force of his scalp were follicles that began to bud. And those things stand as a picture of God extending incremental grace to Samson because you and I know what's about to happen. Uh, the Philistines, man, 
They, they were thugs, no doubt, but they were stupid. They knew that the secret of his strength was in his hair. I would have had a barber hanging out with that dude all day, every day. He would have gotten his, his dome shaved every day if I had been in charge, but, but they, they just thought they had him. They're so blinded by their war lust and their, 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 their own spiritual darkness that they're failing to notice that the man with his eyes gouged out who, who had been such a, a deliverer for Israel, his hair was starting to grow back and that was the source of his strength and his anointing. It's very important because, friends, that's the way grace works. One of the things that I hope we'll all remember and be kind and merciful to those who have maybe imploded um, you're going to have chance to do life as a Christian with people that blow it, people that fail in some terrible ways. And you know what churches have been known for for decades? When somebody fails, churches are stereotypically known for judging them, treating them harshly, rubbing salt in their wounds, and then basically shooting our wounded. That's what churches have been known for, and that's not the heart of the Father. See, when, when Samson had blown it, if he had been a member of most churches, everybody would have been gossiping about him. They, they would have brought him, you know, imprecatory psalms and preached messages to him, telling him, well, you're reaping what you sow, and you've done this, you've done that, and you deserve what you've got. But that's not what God did. God did not remove the consequences for Samson's sin, but there, almost imperceptibly, God is showing grace as each of those hairs begins to come up. You see, you and I may not see the grace of God on somebody else's life. Let's be real careful not to throw judgment on somebody when God's trying to pour grace on them. Let's be really wise to actually be like Jesus was when an adulterous woman was flung at his feet and they were ready to kill her. And Jesus just simply had one commandment before the stoning process got, got started. It was this, yeah, who, whoever among you doesn't have any sin of his own, you get to go first. You get to throw the first stone. And what did they do? Beginning with the oldest all the way down to the youngest, they dropped their rocks and they went home. Uh, brothers, sisters, listen to this. I think we need to be very truthful about righteousness, sin, and judgment to come. I don't think we need to be truthful. Let me strengthen that. We will be truthful about sin and righteousness and judgment to come. But you can be truthful without being brutal. Well, you and I can speak truth in love, holding forth the word of life, speaking the truth in love, where, where our desire is always redemption, not condemnation. And so as Samson's hair was beginning to grow back, I don't even know, we're not told if Samson even knew that God was pouring out that grace. My guess is that he probably didn't know, not at the beginning. So go down into verses 23 through 25 with me. Let's, let's move the, the camera to the, um, to the Philistines. Let's take the camera off of Samson and his misery, and let's take a raw, honest look at how the blindness of sin had so captured the Philistines that they had no inkling whatsoever that multitudes of them were about to be judged in their sin by the God that they defied. So look at it. Here's the hollow victory that deceived the Philistines. This is party day for them. This is their moment and their parade. They had their moment. Verse 23, now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice and they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. 
Now, I want you to understand the magnitude of this. The Philistine territories were divided in five. There were five primary Philistine territories, and each one of those have what is called here a lord. It would basically be the prime minister, it would be the governor maybe. It would be the big shot in town. He would represent all of the power, all of the governance, all of the wealth. And those five lords of the Philistine came up to Gaza, and when they got there, all they wanted to do is just soak in the satisfaction of seeing Samson, the Hebrew, captured, gouged out his eyes, and enslaved. And so what did they do? They all traveled up to that one location, and they decided they were going to have a keg party. And they were going to party their hearts out at the expense of Samson. Now, you can only imagine that Philistines, who had no kind of moral compass whatsoever, all of their, their pagan gods would encourage all sorts of immoral, debauched behavior. And so it would have been a rowdy, rowdy party, fully flowing with liquor and licentiousness and everything that you can imagine. If you take the worst of Las Vegas, the worst of downtown Atlanta, the worst of New York City and L.A., wrap it all up into one ball, and bleh, that's what they were doing there among the Philistines. They were all gathered in one place, but notice this. They're beating their chest, they're thumping their chest, and they're, they're giving that speech that our God is bigger than your God. And they offered a sacrifice. They're actually showing gratitude and thanks. That's how darkened their understanding was. That they're literally ignorant of the fact that they are worshiping a demonic entity represented by the God of Dagon. And the Bible says that they're actually rejoicing. Let's remember this. The scriptures tell us there's pleasure in sin for a season. Listen, I, I, know, I know a lot of people that are, are just fully immersed in their sin, and they don't have any qualms about it. Not every unsaved, unredeemed person who is immersed in a sinful lifestyle is miserable. We, you know, we, we kind of want that to be the case. You know, we don't want them to have fun while they're sinning, but the fact of the matter is there's no conflict within them. So as long as they're able to feed their flesh and find their pleasure in whatever pleases them, they're going to be able to rejoice, and especially when it's fueled by the, the uninhibiting uh, uh, alcohol that was going on. And so they're, they're singing praises, and they're dancing, and they're rejoicing, and they're partying, and Samson's just kind of sitting there as a, a nasty spectacle of what could have been. So they had their moment. Let, let me just give you this. Um, I want to say this without coming off overly churchy on it. I want to always be wise in how I talk about our unredeemed culture, but I, I do want to just be plain spoken about this. This is probably not the best way to say it, but I think you'll get it this way. Non-believers party now and pay later. Believers, sometimes we pay now. Don't, don't think me crass with this, but will party forever, and it will be holy, and it will be good. Now, if you're too religious and you don't like thinking of the uh, eternal state as being a party, um, I forgive you, because it's going to be. It's going to be amazingly good. There's not going to be any in heaven. And so, yeah, some of us try to get in it down here, and it doesn't always go over too well in, in Bible Belt churches. But um, our culture, listen, there are moments, if, if we're not thinking straight as Christians, we'll look around and we'll be like, well, where is the judgment of God? God, why do, you, why do you allow these things to go on and on and on? 
Why, why Lord, when we're crying out to you and we're fasting and we're praying, we're seeking your face and we're, we're denying ourselves and we're carrying our cross, but the culture is spinning further and further into the abyss. Lord, it, it, when are you going to do something? Well, I, I want you to remember, he did not tell us exactly when he would balance the scales, but he did tell us he'd take care of it. And so what I want to do is in this season of grace is I want to rescue more from the party now, pay later crowd. I want to get them out of that crowd through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to bring them into this place where they enter into an eternal state of peace and joy that isn't dependent on feasting on the pleasures of a temporary world. But these folks, they had their moment and the culture you live in now is characterized by people that have their moment. Don't get discouraged. The psalmist said, uh, I can't remember the psalm, but he's, he, he's talking about when, when he was watching the prosperity of the wicked. He was seeing them prosper. He was seeing them. Does anybody know what that psalm is? It's like 73 or something like that. But he was seeing the prosperity of the wicked. And the Bible in the old King James, I learned this in the King James. He said, my foot well nigh slipped until I went to the house of God. And then I saw their end. You see, it's, when you get your eyes on it and you start thinking, man, I mean, is, is, is all of this worth it? They're having a blast and I'm paying the price and I'm, I'm doing all this. And if you're not careful, you focus on the world too long, you'll start thinking it has something to offer you. It's the only advantage about living the life that I lived prior to I came to Jesus. I, it took me 24 years, but I found out on the day of my salvation, I never wanted to go back to that stuff because I lived that way for so long. Those of you that never got out there, take my testimony, take my word. You're not missing a thing. The pleasures of God are better than your best day. Your, your, your most blank day as a Christian is better than the best day as a non-believer. And so they're going to have their moment. Don't envy that. Remember, this life is a vapor, man. We're, just, we're vapor trailing right now. That is all we are doing. And if you live to be 105 years old, that is like a millimeter compared to the immeasurable extent of eternity that you're going to have with the Son of God. By the way, verse 24, they had their narrative too. Look how they, they spun this thing. When the people saw Samson, again, they praised their God, for they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. Let me just go ahead and tell you, that was completely theologically devoid. There's no truth to what they were saying. But that's what they really believed. Actually, their God didn't do a thing for them because their God's non-existent. Dagon's actually not a thing. It's just a, a man-made image. And by the way, you can do this later. Google images of Dagon. He is an ugly creature. He is part fish, part something else. I mean, I was like, man, if you're going to make a God, you know, go with the Greeks or the Romans, man. They, had, you know, they had stout gods and stuff. But this thing's like a... He's half catfish and half something else. I don't know. But, but they're, they're literally, they, so they create this God, and the fact of the matter is, is their God didn't have anything to do with it. They're actually temporarily rejoicing, but what they don't know is Samson's God is actually setting them up. They, they think their God has blessed them but what they don't know is in God and his infinite wisdom allowed them to take Samson captive so God could get Samson down there in the temple of their false god just so he could have a mass burial right there when one last grace finds Samson. So when, when we look around, and we live, by the way, in a, in a culture that's becoming increasingly pluralistic, and there's pressure on the church now to not be exclusive in what we say. In other words, try this. 
go to work and in a casual conversation about religion just slip in this statement. Yeah, Jesus Christ is the only way to God and everybody apart from Jesus Christ is, is spiritually lost. See how that goes over at the water cooler. You're not going to get employee of the month. That's not going to be well received. Now, now, 50 years ago in America, that's not controversial. Maybe 60 years ago in America, that's not controversial. But now, Christians are expected to be inclusive. We're expected to say, you worship Dagon? Amen. Just be sincere. Whatever, whatever floats your boat, man, just be sincere. You worship Muhammad, you, you worship Confucius, you worship Buddha, or you, you worship this, or you worship that. It's all good. Because ultimately, let me just tell you this. Um, everybody worships something. In the absence of a definite object of worship, most people will default, all people, in the absence of a definite object to worship, whether it's a legitimate object or an uh, illegitimate object, people will default to worshiping self. So people that say, I, I don't have a religion, they're lying to you. They just don't know it. They, they actually do. They are their own God. And so they, they serve themselves. They live for themselves. Even in their moral benevolence, they're doing it for a selfish reward. They're doing it to make them feel good about themselves. So everybody's got a narrative. You just stick to the biblical narrative. You just go ahead and remain a Bible believer in a culture that doesn't want you to be. Are y'all with me on this? I mean, I'm, I'm hoping y'all hadn't drunk the Kool-Aid out there. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, Jesus Christ, let me just be real definite this, just in case you're wondering. Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the ultimate truth, and he is everlasting life. There are perhaps beneficial tenets to other religion, but ultimately none of those religions provide any help for man's biggest problem, which is a sinful, defiled nature before a holy God. Sin must be paid for. God never, when God forgives sin, he doesn't just say, well, that's okay. The only basis for forgiveness is the sin is atoned for. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So it has to be perfect blood that is shed. It can't be polluted blood. It can't be blood that came from another sinner. It has to be perfect blood. Jesus Christ came as the perfect, spotless, sinless lamb of God. And when Jesus Christ willingly gave his life on the cross, he was dying for my sins. He had no sins of his own to die for. So the Father accepted his death on my behalf, on your behalf. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, when we bow to him as Lord, the price that he paid is placed judicially on our account. Our sins are expunged. Now, the problem with other religions is they come to the very person who is the problem, the sinner, and they say, yeah, just work it off. Just work it off. Do good deeds. Memorize a bunch of stuff. Knock on enough doors. Do this. Do that. It's all about what you can do. And the problem is, is all of those works, the scripture says that those works are actually filthy rags before a holy God. I don't know how I got off on evangelism, but I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. Don't start listening to this nonsense in our culture. That, that we all serve one God. You know how to eliminate that fallacy? Start calling your God Jesus Christ instead of just God. Jesus Christ is our God. He is God the Son. So if your co-worker says, hey man, I'm this religion, you're that religion, you're a Christian, I'm this religion, hey, we all worship the same God. You just say, you worship Jesus? You worship Jesus Christ? He's my God too. And they'll tell you real quick, no, 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 no. Because all other religions have a different narrative about who Jesus is. All right, that didn't cost you anything extra. 
I'm just telling you, we better make up our minds about this stuff, folks. You know ultimately, God's not letting me just walk away from this. You know ultimately, when the persecution hits, they're not going to tell you, renounce your belief in God. They're going to say, renounce your faith in Jesus Christ. They're going to go for those that have faith in the Son of God, the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we don't make up our minds, and by the way, if you have kids and grandkids, you need to make sure they understand that because they're more susceptible to this false narrative in our pluralistic culture than any generation that has gone on before them. That the current generation is the most biblically ignorant generation that has ever lived. And by the way, we're all part of that generation that has ever lived in the United States of America. And we're not only missing the truth of the Bible, we're getting inundated with a lot of competing, competing truths, truths. And so if we do not make up our mind that we serve Jesus Christ to the exclusion of all other faiths, religions, creeds, whatever, then friends, we are very susceptible that at the end of the age when persecution hurt, hits the church, and you can think whatever you want about how much of that persecution we're going to endure before the Lord comes back. I'm just going to tell you this. You better be prepared to endure all of it. If you don't have to endure all of it, great. But you ought to be having the confidence in your faith to know that if full persecution hit and I was called to recant my faith or die, that I would die before I ever took back my confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. So they had their narrative, and by the way, verse 25, they had their man. When their hearts were merry, so the drunker they got, they just said, bring Samson out again. Call Samson that he may entertain us. Now, I don't know what Samson was doing, but they were forcing him to do something humiliating. So they called Samson out of the prison, and the Bible just says he entertained them. It could have been something as, as passive as just stand him up, excuse me, and let, let, let us look at him. Let us see the defeat on Samson. Or they could have been forcing him to do court jester kind of things where they would laugh at him or throw food at him. There's no telling, but he was the spectacle. By the way, this was God's man. He was to be God's man. And incrementally, he just kept following a path that took him further and further away from God to the place now where in that prison he's being brought forth and standing before all of these people that he was supposed to bring righteous defeat to, and they're mocking him. And so they thought they won. It reminds me of what might have taken place, and we weren't there, and the Bible doesn't specify it. But I imagine on the day where the Son of God hang, hung on a cross on the top of Golgotha's hill, I think if we could have had eyes to see and, and we would have seen what was going on in the spirit realm, it would have been much like this, that the devil and every demon eerily rejoicing with diabolical glee that Jesus bloodied and beaten and ripped open and crowned with thorns and dripping with saliva and being mocked and cursed and I can just picture the devil and every demon that was there that day and I imagine many of them were they weren't going to miss that laughing with diabolical delight we've got him we've killed him we've crucified him but 
just as three days later Jesus triumphed and I imagine there was a stone-cold silence in hell the day that Jesus came forth from the grave that's what is about to happen here with Samson you see just as God the Father brought up God the Son up out of the grave God the Father was going to take his dying representative there in the temple of Dagon and he was going to work one last miracle through one last grace for Samson so let's look at that and then we'll be done Let's talk and finish with the hallowed halls that Samson entered that day. This is all real. This is all Holy Spirit-inspired and preserved biblical narrative. This happened one day in the ancient Near East when God moved on behalf of a man who deserved nothing from God. So let's look at Samson. We see him without eyes, but he still began to see. Look in verse 25. The Bible says that the Philistines made Samson stand between the pillars. So they were putting him right in the center of the temple of Dagon. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house, re house rests that I may lean against them. Uh, we're not given any detail here, but based on that statement, this is my personal belief. You don't have to agree with me. I believe that Samson was sensing that God was giving him an opportunity to do something. As they were making sport of Samson, as the humiliation, the shame, and the, the defeat was characterizing Samson, as Samson is being led blindly, by the way, having no eyes to see in the natural, they place him up and, and get him between the two pillars. And so Samson just asks the servant boy who's with him, he says, let me, just, let me just rest my hands on the pillars. There's something stirring in him. He's starting to see possibilities again. He's seeing an opportunity to do something for his God and not even fully knowing yet if God would honor his desire to do one more thing to defeat the Philistines. But I believe with all my heart that there was the beginnings of faith starting to percolate in a heart that had long been without faith. And so Samson's starting to see in the spirit again. Now, the opposite is seen in verse 27. The Philistines had their eyes, but they were blind to what was coming. Now, look at the word of God here. The house was full of men and women. That's the temple, the house of Dagon, was full of men and women. All of the lords of the Philistines were there. So all of the prominent leaders were there. And on the roof, check it out, on the roof of the temple, there are 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. So it's, it's a massive party, but, you know, you, it's just like any other culture. You got people that got in on the ground floor. They got the good seats. And then you got the people who got in the nosebleed seats. They're up top on the, on the roof. And you've got 3,000 up top. That only makes me think there's probably at least that many down below. So let's just, let's just say there's 6,000 Philistines that are all gathered to worship Dagon, the crazy-looking fish god, to celebrate the power of Dagon because Samson, who has been brutalized, is sitting there, and they're just soaking in all of this evil pleasure at the expense of the name of Yahweh and his servant Samson. They had eyes to see, but they didn't see what God was doing. They could not see that they were moments away from eternal death finding them. So now we get into verse 28 and 29. Here again is a paradox. Samson had no eyes, but he was seeing in the spirit. And in verse 28 and 29, he was chained, but he was beginning to get free. Samson calls to the Lord and says, O Lord God, please remember me. 
And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Uh, Let me make mention of something. So three three chapters cover the life of Samson in the book of Judges. And he's doing all of this crazy stuff for God over a 20-year period. This is only the second time we ever see him pray. He's the servant of God. He's supposed to be the civic and spiritual leader in Israel. But he's constantly been living in his flesh, and this is only the second time that we're ever told in his entire life as a Nazarite, only the second time he ever prayed. Do you remember what the first time was? It was when he was tired from that fight where he killed a thousand men. He said, God, give me some water. I'm going to die in the desert. So he didn't exactly have a robust intercessory prayer life. But here he is at the end of his life. And just listen to the humility. We've never seen this in his life before. We've never seen the brokenness. We've never seen the dependence. Samson, he never asked God for power to fight a God-sized battle. He just always did it in his own strength. But here he says, Lord, remember me. You know what that does? That, that betrays his heart. His heart felt forgotten by God. I mean, the best of us would have felt forgotten if we were in the backwash of colossal sin and implosion and were blind. And I mean, who would, have, who would have dared thought, yeah, God's with me. Most of us would have just been in the same place. Lord, if you're out there anywhere, just I remember you. Will you please remember me? And what he didn't know is, the God that he was praying to had already had his eye on Samson. He was the one giving Samson strength, one follicle at a time that was coming up through his head. So God was thinking about Samson the whole time, and now Samson is returning this action. He's thinking about God, and he, he grabs the two pillars, and he leans all of his weight against them. And in that little simple action, which is about to be followed by a big reaction, In that simple action, you see Samson beginning to get free of Samson. Samson's biggest enemy was not the Philistines. It never had been. The story of Samson is not so much about Samson against the Philistines. It's about God destroying and defeating the Philistines, beginning that. That was the prophecy over Samson's life. But the story of Samson is really how does Samson defeat Samson in a proper way? Just very quickly here. This is, I can't put this on anybody else in the room, but man, I have fought so many battles as a believer. I mean, I've fought with the devil. I know for a fact I've been in warfare where we're literally in the presence of active demons fighting me. But most of my fights I've felt like have been with people. And if I can air some dirty laundry here as a pastor, a lot of those fights have been with God's people that I believe really loved the Lord, but they were just blind in some way. Or maybe it was me at times, not maybe. At times it was my fault. Sometimes it was there. But I've been in so many battles, and I've gone through seasons where I've thought, man, the devil is my biggest problem, or this person is my biggest problem. But when I am thinking lucidly in the Spirit, When I am centered in Jesus with no hint of condemnation or shame, there are times where I have heard the Lord say, Jeff, Satan ain't within 100 miles of you today. There's there's no demons around you today, son. And Jeff, I love you, but what you're going through right now is not because of a church member or a 
deacon back in the day or this person. Hey, Jeff, all of that protesting you're doing, that's really cute. But let me let you know something. Your biggest problem right now is you. Now, I'm sure none of y'all have ever had a conversation with the Lord like that, but, but for me, and I, I, that's probably why I like Samson's story, because it's just the theme of the war between the spirit and the flesh. You know, Paul, let me give you some New Testament theology. Somebody asked me, are you ever going to preach out of the New Testament again? I was like, hey, man, hang around for years, and you'll get the whole Bible if you just stay around here for a little while, but... But my point being is this, is that Paul said that there's a war between the spirit, your human redeemed spirit, harnessed by the Holy Spirit, your flesh wars against that. And listen, in those moments where you don't think there's any war, it's probably because you're losing it at that time. It's probably because the flesh is winning to the degree that you don't even sense the war anymore. But if we're being sanctified and we're pressing in to... To, to Jesus for deeper intimacy and greater um, just closeness and glory for him, then you're going to feel your flesh saying, uh-uh, and it fights that. Samson is about to get delivered from his flesh in the most dramatic fashion. So having lived selfishly, verse 30, he dies selflessly. This is the first and only act of selflessness that Samson ever did so Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed. I always read that, by the way, as bowed. It's not. The Hebrew word indicates a stretching out, not a restricting and bowing down. It indicates a, a stretching out. And so what he's doing is he's bowing up with one final exertion of strength. He's stretching everything from within him out, and he's pushing against those pillars and the Bible says that he did it with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. Just right in the margin of your Bible, buzzkill. I mean, they, they, he totally, y'all didn't like that. Y'all did, did anybody not grow up in the suburbs? Sometimes I feel like I'm, okay. So he, he totally killed the party, literally. He pushes the pillars and the 3,000 people on the roof come crashing down and they die. And the people that were under the roof had the roof come down on them, including Samson, and everybody dies. Samson, in this way only, it's the only parallel I really see between him and the Son of God. As Jesus took the full weight upon himself, Samson did the same thing. As Jesus was willing to sacrifice himself for the glory of the Father, Samson did the exact same thing. As Jesus took the enemy's weapon of death, that, that thing the enemy prized most of all, Jesus took that weapon, took it within himself, died in true physical death, separated from God the Father for the first time in the existence of Trinitarian uh, interpersonal relationship. He dies, takes death upon himself, and in de doing so, defeated the enemy with his own weapon. I love that about Samson. Samson's like, I got to kill these people. I think I'll use their own God to kill them. And he pushes the pillars with all of his strength. And God gives him one last grace of supernatural strength. And he totally killed, by the way, the five lords of the Philistines. They got to have five new presidential elections. Back in their hometown, where it gets back, yeah, the president ain't coming home. Not of Gath or Gaza or any of these places. And by the way, before you start feeling sorry, because... 
some of you tree huggers out there, not anybody in here, but some of, some of you might think that, oh, well, God shouldn't have done that. Friends, let the Bible be the Bible and let God be God. He's not asking for our advice. He's God, and these pagans hated him and worshiped false gods and defied him. By the way, they had been oppressing his people for decades. Some of you still struggle with that. Let me just tell you, if somebody was treating your kid wrongly and abusing and humiliating did you hear about the daddy that beat a guy to death because some pervert followed his girl into a bathroom stall at a department store dude got beat to death now I'm probably risking it here but there's a part of me that says kind of got what was coming to you you follow a little girl in the bathroom and her daddy sees it you better expect it he's not going to ask you politely to get out of the stall if somebody did that to one of my kids you probably have to get a new pastor. Thank God you got three more. Amen. <laughs> I just I actually feel some resistance to God killing these people. W listen, man, you're, I, I have no time left, so I'm just going to, I got to end the Samson series well, so let me just be careful here. But God does not allow the enemy to prosper over his children indefinitely. There, there's a day of reckoning coming. And I'm going to tell you, when the scripture says every knee will bow, every one of these people that were in the temple of Dagon that died in their, their pagan sin, they're actually going to bow before the Son of God at the second resurrection. They're actually going to have to bow before the Son of God, confess him as Lord before they're cast into the eternal lake of fire. Every demon that has ever harassed you is going to confess Christos Kurios, Jesus Christ as Lord, before they're cast into the lake of fire. Satan himself, according to um, Ezekiel 28, Satan himself, Isaiah 14, is, is going to bow, Satan is going to, Satan is going to bow before Jesus, and he's going to say, Jesus Christ is Lord before he's cast into the lake of fire. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of compassion. But I'm going to tell you, the book of Revelation speaks of God being glorified in his wrath at the end of the age. So we better buckle up and get used to that. And every now and then, it doesn't wait until the end of the age. So last verse, last two minutes. Having squandered much, Samson received much grace. His brothers, all his family, came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol, in the tomb of Manoah, his father. I, that speaks so amazingly to me. I just think that's precious. He got buried by his dad, the dad that he had kind of dishonored his whole life, but in the end, he gets put back in the family, uh, you know, plot. He gets buried in honor next to his father on the family land. And then the Bible adds the footnote that he judged Israel for 20 years. Then Hebrews 11.32, it'll be up on your screen. The writer of Hebrews says this, when he's listing all of these great examples of the faith what more shall I say for time would fail me to tell of Gideon Barak Samson Samson for all of his struggles all of his sins all of his failures everything he lost the last word in the Bible that mentions his name says, look to Samson, not as an example of how to live your life. But God sees this. It's not how we begin. It's how we finish. 
So hallelujah for all of us with a little bit of rubble in our past. That's not what he's looking at tonight. You say, well, Jeff, my past, what about yesterday? Well, let me just tell you, what are you going to do tomorrow? You can live under the shadow of your most recent failure or your most massive failure. Or you can just say, where my sin is abounded, there the grace of the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, there his grace abounds more. So with Jesus Christ, there is an opportunity to seal your past off and let it be history and to move directly forward intentionally saying, from this day forward, I carry my cross. I didn't start as well as I could have, but by the grace of God, I'm going to finish better than I ever imagined. Friends, let's live that way. That's the testimony of Samson, and I think it can be ours too. Will we stand to our feet tonight? I just ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. The Father really wants you to be free of all shame. It is not the will of the Father for you to live in perpetual guilt, shame, and regret over your yesterdays. So I ask you a question. Are you done with that thing that the devil's been holding over your head as your identifying mark? Are you done with it? some moral collapse, some marital collapse, some legal issue, some besetting struggle that crept back into your life recently when you had mastered it before. Can you just give that to Jesus right now? I mean it. Like, get your hands off of it. Give it to him. Give it to him. He's calling you to release that. And then ask him to take the shame that has been attached to it, and he will. You're not identified by your biggest failure. You're not. That's not what he sees. No matter how loudly the enemy screams it, no matter how many people seem to want to remind you of it, you have to listen to your father. And this is what he says. You're my child. You're washed in the blood. I love you and I accept you. I'm not ashamed to call you brethren. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for what we've learned in this series. Help us to finish well. In the name of your Son, amen.